You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. I am a, a huge fan of the International Churches of Christ. You may or may not know it, but we are, um, we are brothers and sisters who got disconnected in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but we're the same group. We're from the same fold. We are from the same tribe. However you want to put it, we are very closely related. And it's only been in very, very recent history that the Churches of Christ split and formed this uh, this twofold thing that we have now, the Churches of Christ and the International Churches of Christ. I was telling someone tonight, I was telling Steve that when I'm on my deathbed, I hope that I can say, remember how the Church of the Christ split for 30 or 40 years? I'm so glad they patched that up. And with stuff like this, you bringing me to speak for you, um, fellowship with people like Kenny and myself, I'll be teaching at a conference with the ICOC in early March, having graduate students, um, from the ICOC in my classrooms, having ICOC undergrads. Um, we're just going to come back together, uh, which is where we belong. We're in the same family. I think that you guys have a ton of stuff. The ICOC has a ton of stuff to offer the Church of Christ, what, what's often called the mainstream Church of Christ. And uh, and I believe we have some things to offer too, but uh, we, we need to get back together. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, tonight you're going to learn a little something uh, about that. So some of you probably came to Christ through the International Church of Christ, and you've never heard about, you know, what, what is this movement uh, that, that had a split and all that. Some of you are probably saying, what, what, what's he talking about? Well, hopefully by the end of tonight uh, you'll have a better idea. And I'll tell you this, that um, I'm going to talk here for about 45, maybe 50 minutes and then there's going to be a time of, uh, of Q&A. Um, I've been told you guys are pretty zealous learners. So I'll say two things. Number one, you need to come to Pepperdine and study with us. Uh, number two, feel free to ask, ask questions. Um, I think we have a time limit on tonight. I think it's 9 o'clock. We have to shut it down. But you can email me. Um, we can be in touch in other ways, okay? So uh, feel free to, to reach out to Kenny. Kenny will get you into, into contact with me if I can be of any further help. And don't forget, I'll be speaking next Wednesday, too. So if you have questions that don't get answered tonight, let's talk about it next Wednesday, okay? All right. So, um, yeah, well, welcome to Pepperdine. I'm in my Pepperdine office right now. I live on the campus of Pepperdine. And so I have one of the greatest commutes in the world. I get to drive down the hill and come right in this office where... Kenny and many of the people that you know and love that have been through Pepperdine, they have set themselves right here across from me. We've talked about very heavy theological issues. <laughs> so I try not to take myself nor my discipline too seriously. So join me tonight as we talk mainly about history. I'm just going to give you a primer on what on earth is the Church of Christ You've probably heard people talk about that. What on earth is the Church of Christ? So you should be seeing uh, you, you should be seeing my screen right now. Is that right? 
Kenny, can, why don't you unmute yourself and tell me? Uh, we can't see it yet. We can't see it yet, but I, I have a feeling that you're close to it. Okay. All right. How's that? There we go. Now we can see it. Okay. I'm going to admit Kristen DeSanti into the Zoom room, so welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the people in charge tonight, so I get to allow people into the Zoom room. It's kind of fun. All right, so I can see your faces. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to see your face, and uh, but I also want uh, you to be able to see the screen. So can you see what on earth is the Church of Christ? You guys see that? Yep, we can see it. Great. Okay. All right, uh, so I, uh, I'm i representing Pepperdine and then also the Pasadena Church of Christ. Okay. So let me just show you some basic statistics, a lot of text here on this screen. But basically, let me summarize. There's about 14 million people in about 180 countries in this world. That's vast majority of the nation, the, the world's nations that associate with something called the, it used to be called the restoration movement. Okay. That has kind of, uh, it's not really called the restoration movement anymore. I mean, some people still do, but uh, it's, the problem is that the restoration movement is also a, an expression that has been adopted by the church of Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as what? Mormons. That's right. Mormons. Kenny, I might need you to unmute from time to time just so you can play with me, okay? So I can uh, have some, uh, <laughs> I can do that. I can give you your feedback. Back and forth, okay. Yeah. No one else is going to be able to, so yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, so the, the, the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, they also refer to themselves as the Restoration Movement. So that was one reason why some of my mentors, like Doug Foster, said that we need to call our movement something else. Another reason is because if you guys ever studied Oliver Cromwell in English history, you know that there was a time when um, the United Kingdom actually didn't have a king. Um, They were ruled by Puritans. And whenever the king came back, they called it themselves the Restoration. They called that that moment in time the Restoration. So we typically call these days, we tend to call this movement the Stone-Campbell movement. Now, what is Stone and Campbell? Well, there's two guys. One's Barton Stone. One's Alexander Campbell. Okay, that's where we get Stone Campbell uh, for Stone Campbell movement. And what we mean when we say the Stone Campbell movement, and all you got to do is Google this, and you're going to get a gazillion hits. Okay, but the Stone Campbell movement consists of four movements. It has split. We've split four times, and so now we have the Church of Christ, which is often called the Acapella Church of Christ. Or the, you guys tend to call it the, the mainstream Church of Christ. All right, we're not so a cappella anymore. A bunch of the Churches of Christ have started uh, using instruments, and so we're kind of a mix nowadays. So, but it, it doesn't make much sense anymore to call it the a cappella Church of Christ because most of our large Churches of Christ, like in Tennessee and Texas and so forth, are are you they're doing kind of, they'll do an a cappella service, but then they'll also do an instrumental service. So. That's why it, it's we for years we called ourselves the Acapella Church of Christ, but uh, that's breaking down. We also have the Independent Christian Church, also known as the CCCC, which is Christian Churches and Churches of Christ. Christian Churches and Churches of Christ. Then you have the Disciples of Christ. Their formal name 
is Christian church, and then in parentheses, disciples of Christ. And then you have the International Churches of Christ, which is the youngest of the four. As you guys know, it dates to uh, late 1970s. It uh, broke off from the mainstream Churches of Christ. Okay, so that gives you uh, an intro. The Church of Christ now, specifically the Church of Christ, about four to four to five million members worldwide. So it's a good size movement. It's not huge, but it's a good size. United States, pretty good number. I mean, keep in mind there's about 350 million Americans, but 1.5 million members. That's not bad. India has a pretty good population of Church of Christ people, estimated to be around somewhere around 600,000. And then in Africa, all denominations in the world are growing in Africa. Africa, as you guys have probably read, I'll be happy to come and give a series on global Christianity sometimes, but Africa is just blowing up with Christianity right now. Plus, um, African families are large. So every woman in Africa will have four or five children, whereas in America, it's one or two. In Western Europe, it's barely one. Uh, much of Asia is now two or one children, but Africa still have large families, and so the gospel is growing. People are turning to Christ, but then you're also having large families. That leads to explosive, exponential growth of all sorts of Christians, everything from Anglicans to uh, Presbyterians, you know, to Pentecostal groups. All forms of Christianity are exploding in Africa. All right, now let me give you some some interesting statistics. I love stats. If any of uh, in, you know in, any of my students want to uh, vouch for this, I mean, I love statistics because it just kind of anchors a narrative. So I can describe stuff with stories, but if I nail down the the statistics, there's some of you out there, not all of you, but some of you are going to say, "I like that." That helps me kind of have a framework in my mind. So here are those four movements that I talked about that are part of the restoration movement or the stone Campbell movement okay you have the disciples of christ oh by the way i know you guys often call yourselves disciples but when i say disciples i'm talking about disciples of christ which is christian church disciples of christ all right so in america about 800,000 members in 2010 okay look at the 2020 statistics so what i have here on this screen are the 2010 statistics and then the 2020 statistics. So give me a thumbs up if you understand what I'm doing on this slide. Okay, I saw half-hearted thumbs up. So, so I'm trying to give you the stats for all four streams of the Restoration Stone Campbell movement. 2010, so 10 years ago. And then this is a good slide. This is a good comparison because then it helps you understand, you know, what has happened in the last 10 years. So let's look at it. Disciples. This is what happened if you don't evangelize, folks. Are you following that? 800,000 to 382,000. Are you with me? That's what happens if you don't bring anybody into the church for a period of 10 years. Uh, the CCCC, Christian Churches, Churches of Christ, they had 1.5 million members and in 2010, and now they're at 1.1. Church of the Christ, we, in 2010, 
we had 1.6 million members in the U.S., and now we have 1.5 million members, and we've, we've uh, closed down 1,000 congregations. You see that statistic? Catch that? And then the ICOC, slightly different trajectory, isn't it? In 2010, ICOC had 88,000. Last 10 years, the International Church of Christ has actually grown. You guys aware of that? Kenny, is the church aware of that, by and large, that the church, of course, the magnificent growth that went on in the 80s and 90s is not there, but uh, it's still growing. Is that, is that common knowledge in the church? I would not say that's common knowledge in the church. Okay. So that's, uh, just give yourself a pat on the back. You know, just go for it. You guys have, you've done, you've done all right. You've done all right. Okay, so now let's get into this restoration heritage. So it goes back to these two guys, Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone. They're in the early, early 1800s, and, and they put together this movement, which went by several names. It went by Church of Christ, because basically what they said was they said, look, because Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, they, come from, they both come from a Presbyterian background. So we share a lot of ideas with the Presbyterians. But... They they had a falling out with the Presbyterians. And so then Campbell joined the Baptists for about 15 years. And that's where he picked up the idea of believers' immersion. Because as you know, Presbyterians baptize babies. Baptists baptize believers. You with me? And so, but then Campbell had a falling out with the Baptists. And so he said, I want to start, you know, our own thing. And let's just call ourselves... You know, maybe just the Church of, I don't know, Church of Christ. <laughs> Let's not call ourselves Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians or Catholics. Let's just call ourselves disciples. That's where this comes from. So, all as you see, all four of the movements still use that same approach. They don't use some unbiblical name. You know, Disciples of Christ, Christian Churches, Churches of Christ. All right? These are the words that we use to describe ourselves because... That was a major conviction of Alexander Campbell. However, let's back up. There's a history there. And great job, Steve, telling this history. That's a lot of years that you covered last week. But what happens is you have the famous one is Martin Luther. Martin Luther starts the, the Protestant Reformation. You know, he nailed the theses to the door. He wasn't the only big one. There were several famous ones. Calvin. Another one is a guy named John Knox, who was actually from Scotland. From Scotland. John Knox studied in Geneva with Calvin. And he took Protestant Christianity back to Scotland. And that's basically where Alexander Campbell is from. He's a Scotsman. He actually comes from Northern Ireland, but in those days, uh, a lot of Scots, Scots people were living in Northern Ireland. All right? So there's a history there. It all goes back to, of course, it goes back to the, the New Testament church. But then the Catholic church, of course, dominated Christianity for about 1,500 years. Then you get the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. And then you get Knox and Calvin, these guys in the 1500s, 1600s. But what these guys wanted to do, Luther, Calvin, Knox, all these reformers, all these leading reformers, they all wanted to get back to the Bible. 
they got sick of all the rituals that nobody quite understood, all the theologies that were very complicated, and they said, let's get back to the Bible. Now, that's, that, that's a good move. I think all of us would agree with that. But there are some shortcomings when you do that. When you pretend that you are replicating the Bible, it, it can lead to a certain hubris, a certain arrogance. When you think, well, everyone's el- everyone else has missed it, but we, we've gone back to the Bible. You know, <laughs> there's some pride there. Um, let's progress here. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to talk about some of these strengths and weaknesses. And so... Who of you knows the term Berean? Kenny, do you know this word? Never heard of it. <laughs> you need to read Acts, man. <laughs> so it comes from Acts 17. And and this is just me trying to be cute, okay? I came up with this word Berean, and this is the outline for my lecture tonight. Trying to be Berean. And where it comes from is Acts 17. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. All right, so I'm using that little acronym, okay? I'm using that acronym as the outline, as the six points for my sermon slash lecture tonight. Are you with me? So this is going to make it more interesting because you're going to know what the next point is. So, Berean, biblical focus, ecumenical, rational inquiry, evangelistic, alternative reality, and then non-denominational. All right, let's get started here. Here we go. Biblical focus. This is probably the, the most obvious issue that our forefathers and foremothers embraced, and that is a biblical focus. Let's get back to the Bible. Now, what are the strengths here? Well, there's some real strengths when you decide that you want to get back to the Bible. Your your views are rooted in biblical precedent. Okay, so instead of trying to find precedent in something else, you find precedent in the Bible. And so what this means is that whenever we say, why do we do what we do? Some churches don't go back to the Bible. So, why, you know, so if you were to ask a Presbyterian, you know, if you were to ask them, why do you baptize babies? And I'm not trying to pick on Presbyterians, okay? I'm just trying to make a point here, so stick with me. If you were to ask a Presbyterian that, why do you guys baptize babies? They would have to give you some history and some theology of the late first century, early second century, when Christians started elevating the concept of baptism and so forth. Because they're not, they don't baptize babies in the New Testament, at least not that we can see. Maybe they did. I'll grant them that. Maybe there was a baby baptized by, by some apostle. I don't know. But it's not there. It's not discussed. Um. So, but if you're if you have a biblical focus, you try to root your practices in 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 a book of the Bible, a book, chapter, and verse. That's what we tend to do. Now, that's good and bad. <laughs> that's good and bad because you know there are times. You know, does the Bible embrace 
free will or predestination? Yeah, it's a tough one because the Bible embraces both. <laughs> so there's predestination versus, you know, Paul says you are predestined and so forth. And then free will seems to be obvious. So, you know, you, 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 there's times where, you know, going back to book, chapter, and verse can get complicated. However, uh, it's the firmest source that we have. So do you want to build your church's theology on the Bible, or do you want to build it on, you know, some movement in the 6th or 7th century? I'll take the Bible hands down. <laughs> you know, because the way that the Reformers thought is – the further you get from the Bible, the more likely you are to have biases and to make mistakes in your in your beliefs. That's what the reformers thought. The further you get away from the the Bible, it, the, you know you're getting further away from your primary source. Tradition is valuable. I, make no mistake. I mean, tradition can be very valuable. I mean, those of us who have gone into a a big beautiful Eastern Orthodox Divine Liturgy. Raise your hand if you've ever been to an Eastern Orthodox Divine Liturgy service. Have any of you done that? Okay, I see Candace. Thank you, Candace. It's magic. I mean, it's magnificent. You know, they've been they've been doing that stuff since like the 300s. It's impressive, and that's valuable. Tradition's valuable, but I think that we're on firmer ground if we root our beliefs and our practices in the Bible rather than in something that happened 350 years after the Bible, wouldn't you say? We're on a little firmer ground. Now, folks, here's the temptation. The temptation is that sometimes we who treasure the Bible, people sometimes they call us Bible bangers. Who's heard that expression? You ever heard Bible banging? Yeah. Well, everyone raised their hand for that one because we've all been – uh, you know, accused or people have insinuated that we're Bible bangers or something like that. Um, Carolina, you got a question for me there? No? So, um, so that's the temptation. <laughs> temptation. Bible bashing, Bible thumping, maybe. I've never yeah. heard of Bible banging, but that's a yeah. that's a new one for me. Bible banging, Bible bashing, all that. But the, the temptation is that we get overzealous and we start throwing Bible passages at people <clears throat> as if we're throwing knives. And that, that's not going to help us. That's, that's not going to help us be more effective in our evangelism. We've got to do so with, with dignity and with gentleness uh, whenever we preach the word. Okay. <clears throat> Number two. Here's my second point. Ecumenical. Barton Stone, one of our two founders, once said, let Christian unity be our polar star. That's what the word ecumenical means. It means Christian unity, okay? That word means Christian unity. So the strengths of being an ecumenical Christian are obvious. You are, um, you know, you, you, you want people to join in with you. You don't want divisions in the church. You want to be united. You want to be an ecumenical person. You want to be charitable. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. This is one of the, the great statements of our, of our uh, Stone Campbell movement. So we have a spirit of charity towards people. Also, it's right in line with what Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, 
I pray that they will be brought to complete unity. Complete unity. Well, we haven't, uh, you know how many Christian denominations there are these days? Uh, last time I checked, it's around 44,000 Christian denominations. 44,000 denominations. So, what would Jesus say if he came back and said, are you guys united? We'd have to say, uh, uh, more or less. <laughs> I don't know how we would answer that if he asked us. Um, but if you're an ecumenical Christian, you also are gracious. You 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 accept people. You try to steer away from quarreling all the time. Now, here's the temptation. If you're a very ecumenical person, you just kind of become laissez-faire. You just say, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all good people. And what this often leads to is kind of cheap grace, what's often called cheap grace. It leads to lax discipleship. And as Paul said, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, no way, Jose. That's what he would say if he was in L.A. There's only like four of you that understand my sense of humor, so please get on board. <laughs> okay, thank you, Billy. <laughs> that was hilarious. That was, that was really funny, Doctor. <laughs> All right. Okay, our, our, our third point for tonight is rational inquiry. All right, so... This is, a, this is a great strength, particularly in the churches of Christ. We have all sorts of, uh, we have all sorts of uh, institutions of higher education, all sorts of Bible colleges. And, you know, churches of Christ are really good at this. We are really good at establishing uh, institutions that study the Bible, but also study all kinds of stuff. So um, we, we prize reason. Now, you could say, you could critique us and say, wait a minute. But the Pentecostals, are grow- they're the ones that are growing by leaps and bounds. Well, yeah, and I appreciate the Pentecostals, but I also appreciate reason and reasoning through your beliefs carefully. I think that's important. I don't want to believe something simply because I was caught up in sort of an emotional fervor. I think it's important to believe stuff that has been ironed out and thought about for me personally. I feel like I, I want to, yes, of course, I, I have an emotional side to me. And I'm sure someday you guys will see me shed a tear during a wonderful worship song or something like that or get caught up in a prayer, caught, caught up in the spirit where I'm emotional. And that happens. That, ha- that should happen to all of us. Our, our Lord and Savior got emotional. But we need to have a very reasoned faith. And so this has led to all these colleges because we've always been very pro-science. Well, I shouldn't say always. There's, there's, t- there's some of our members that haven't been pro-science. But science is, science is a very beneficial exercise. In fact, the Churches of Christ, our first college established in 1836, was called Bacon College. And it was named after Francis Bacon, who is the father of what we call today the scientific method. Um. No fear of truth. This is in Pepperdine's founding documents. We have no fear of truth. And it's based on this passage you see up in the upper right hand, which actually comes from Lubbock Christian University, which is my alma mater, where I did my bachelor's. It said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So 
whenever we, we shouldn't be afraid to study and to learn and to challenge ourselves and to be open to what scientists are saying and theologians and philosophers. I mean, I, I enter into those, uh, those conversations eagerly, and so should you. Um, now, you don't want to jump from uh, eighth grade classroom to a graduate school. That's too, that's too big. But it's important to think through your beliefs. Now, the temptation here is that you become prideful in, and arrogant in your, in your knowledge. We all know the passages that say, you know, knowledge puffs up. And it does. I mean, I have spent a good amount of time in these three, these three pictures you see here. The upright is Lubbock Christian. I did my bachelor's there in uh, religion and communication. The bottom right is called Abilene Christian University, another great Church of Christ university. I did my master's there in history and theology. And then the upper left, top left, is Pepperdine. I teach church history and world religions there. So I, uh, I understand the university world. It's kind of the world that I walk and talk in. But it's also a world full of pride. And a lot of that pride crosses over into arrogance. And so I try to be conscious of that. Earlier I said I try not to take myself nor my discipline too seriously, because when you take yourself too seriously when it comes to knowledge, you begin to get puffed up, and you begin, especially as a Christian theologian, you begin to focus on the discipline rather than on the Lord. Are you getting a rhythm of how I'm doing this lesson tonight? Okay, we're gonna, I'm going to introduce the next one. We're going to see the strengths and the temptations. So evangelistic. This is where International Churches of Christ are really good at this one. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. i got to share with you something I have on my desk here. Voices are plentiful, followers are not. That's a quote from Francis Chan that I have on my desk here. Be real in my faith. Don't just win people over just to win people over. We're not chasing some quota. We're trying to be real disciples of Jesus. Yes, Jesus said, "Go." Jesus told us to go out and baptize people, but he said, go and make disciples. Make disciples. Great commission. And this has led to explosive growth in the Church of Christ and all of the Stone Campbell movement. We've had some really great moments of growth throughout our history. One of the great strengths of the International Churches of Christ is that they're always kind of looking globally. Hey, let's plant a church in, you know, Poland. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you guys do it. I, I always thought that maybe the International Churches of Christ, like, gets a big map. Kind of like, like you see on my wall here. Just get a big map and, like, throw a dart. And wherever the dart lands, let's plant a church there. Is that how you guys do it? Kenny, is that how you do it? That sounds pretty accurate. No, I'm kidding. That's not. Yeah. It's living, a lot more thought goes into it. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Maybe back in the day. Some, maybe, probably happened once. <laughs> you know, I've actually thought about that through the years. I, I, I've, I've actually, I actually thought that thought of, wouldn't that be funny if you just took a, a map and just threw a dart and said, I'm going to spread the gospel 
boom, Mozambique. You know, <laughs> I you know there's 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 dumber things that have been thought of than than that. But I mean, like Kenny said, I mean, it takes some strategy to do it and to do it well. Now, the the temptation, folks, is that you, <clears throat> and I don't know enough about the the inner workings of the International Church of Christ, but I do know this, that when churches get so focused on the Great Commission, <clears throat> they kind of run everywhere, and they neglect making disciples. <clears throat> I'll just share with you a story. Uh, I, I go to India a lot. The, one of my areas of expertise is India, because I teach world religions uh, at Pepperdine. I'm the main world religions teacher. And so about every year I go to India, <clears throat> One year, uh, I, I heard about some guy that was baptizing, a Church of Christ uh, missionary, who was baptizing, they said he's baptizing tens of thousands of people. And I thought to myself, wow, who is this guy? I'm not going to use his name because I don't want you to Google him. But I, you know, he was really causing a big stir. People were like, man, there's this guy, there's this Church of Christ guy in India who is baptizing Thousands and thousands of people. Well, I went down there because I go to India all the time. And I just went to go kind of check up on what what's going on. I mean, this is the greatest story since 200 years. I mean, what's happening here? Come to find out, the guy would go into Indian villages. And he would talk about Jesus. He would have a translator. Hindus have no problem with Jesus. They love Jesus. Gandhi said Jesus was his guru. They believe Jesus is an avatar. You know, he's a he's a God who became human. The problem is they have hundreds of those. And so when this guy came to town, he would say, all right, I want to tell you about Jesus. And and he would tell all these wonderful stories about Jesus. And he'd say, all right, if you want to do what Jesus said, go down into the water and get baptized. And uh, people from India are eager to to do the right thing. I mean, they're sweet people. They, they want to obey God or the gods. And so thousands of them would go down into the water and get baptized. But they get out and they go to the Hindu temple and worship. So you can make, you can baptize a lot of people, but sometimes there is no correlation with true discipleship. No, sometimes there's hardly any correlation. And I found with my own eyes that that's precisely what was happening in that ministry. Now, some people will counter and they'll say, well, maybe there were one or two that came to the Lord. Yeah, okay, fine. I'll grant you that. Maybe one or two came to Christ, and I'm happy about that. But that's very different than tens of thousands of people turning to Christ. They did turn to Christ, but they didn't turn their back on Krishna or Vishnu or Shiva. All right. Alternative reality. This one really goes back to stone. And this is about living uh, in the world, but not of the world. Okay? So, the kingdom of God is not of this world. So, we have to be willing to live an alternative reality. The passage here that I want to focus on is Romans 12. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the church offers a cultural alternative. So if somebody joins the church, joins a true disciple-making church, 
they're going to notice it's very different than the world. And let me say this, and I could preach a whole series on this. According to church history, the greatest mistake you can ever make is by saying that your church needs to look just like the culture. Because then people will feel no need to go to church. Do you follow that, what I just said? If people walk into your church and the rules, the boundaries, the, the, the teaching is exactly the same as outside the walls of the church, you don't really offer anything. All you're offering is the world. Why not go to a shopping mall? That's a building you can go into that has the same values as the world. But if you go and step into a church building, hopefully you find an alternative reality. It's Yes, it's in the America. It's in the United States. It's in California. But when you enter that facility, people think differently. They have different values that match the Bible rather than the culture. So is it, this is probably the, the most complicated of the six issues. But are, did you catch it okay, Kenny? Am I describing it all right? Yeah, that was well said. Okay. Now, I think sometimes when you look at the temptation, it helps you understand the strengths better. The temptation here is that some churches have become so cut off from the world that they are just utterly disconnected from society. Utterly disconnected from society. There are a few churches like that. In the past, people would call them sects or cults. Um, so you don't want to you you don't want to establish a church that is utterly disconnected. All right, but you do need to have what I'm calling an alternative reality. You need to notice when you walk into the fellowship of the believers, you need to say, "Wow, these people are very different than the people say at, at my work. These people think differently. People need to clue into that when they go to our churches." All right, and then finally, finally, some of you love that word, finally. I know I always did as a student. Finally, yes, finally. The greatest word in a sermon, strengths of, of, of the non-denominational side of our movements. This goes back to another, another leader in the early Church of Christ. His name was Walter Scott. He said this, we have no creed but Christ. And this was one of the brilliant strokes of our movement because the Presbyterians had their, you know, West, they, they had their uh, creed, their confession. The Lutherans, they had their confession. You know, even the Baptists had their, their uh, confessions. You know, the Roman Catholics had their creed. So everybody's got their creed. Everybody's got their confession. But you know what the, the Church of Christ said? Is they said, uh, no creed but Christ. So our creed is in the Bible. You know, a lot of churches have what they call a catechism. That is, they walk you through a, a series of teachings that you need to comprehend before you become a Christian. And, and that's fine and dandy. But the, uh, the churches of Christ, they said, look, let's make it simple. You need to do five things. You, you need to have faith, repentance, baptism, remission of your sins, uh, baptism for the remission of your sins. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It goes back to uh, Acts 2.38. That was really, you know, one of the great passages of the early Church of Christ movement. 
So um, non-denominational. So what are the strengths of being a non-denominational church, folks? One of the strengths is that you simple reformanda, you're always reforming. So you don't get bogged down in your creeds and your confessions. You're always kind of thinking and changing. You're always willing to grow and to move and to change. All right. Um, your loyalty is not to these creeds. Your loyalty is to God's word. What we know for sure comes from God. And this is really kind of the core cause. If you were to say, what's the cause of the Stone Campbell movement? This is probably it. You know. Now, the temptation here, the downside is that sometimes you think that you're always replicating the New Testament, but in reality, you just don't know your church history. You haven't studied history enough. And so you think that you're sort of reinventing the wheel. Oh, we're, we're going to go back to the Bible. Nobody's ever gone back to the Bible, but we're going to go back to the Bible. You know how many people have said that over the years? You know, they thought they were going back to the Bible, but we're really going back to the Bible. I wish I had a quarter for every person that said that. I would be a multimillionaire. People say this all the time. Let's go. Let's just get back to the Bible. You need to know your church history. Because if you don't know your church history, you're destined to repeat the mistakes that were made in the past. You have to know history. Because history is a very useful tool, folks. All right. Kenny, am I down to three, four, or five minutes, something like that? You're at 8.27, so you have plenty of time. Well, I mean, uh, did, I made a bargain that I'd give them 30 minutes of question and answer. Oh, yeah. Yes, so you can. That's true. You have All, right, let, then. <laughs> all right, let's do this. Let, let me wind this down real fast, okay? I think I just have a few more slides. So where do we fit in? Where do we fit in? So here's the four, uh, four little logos. You have the ICOC. Church of Christ, we always have nice brick buildings. <laughs> They're always made of brick. Uh, then you have the Disciples of Christ, which is represented by the chalice and the uh, cross of St. Andrew. And then you have the, the CCCC, or the Christian Independent Christian Church. It's in the top left. And I, they don't have a logo, so I just used one of their most famous churches, Shepherd Church, which is in Porter Ranch, which has somewhere like 11,000 members. It's one of their kind of iconic uh, churches. So where do we fit in? Well, the disciples of Christ have been really good at, at emphasizing ecumenism, their ecumenical focus, unity. But they've been so, they try to unite so much that they kind of sacrifice their doctrines in order to unite with other people. But I would say that disciples of Christ really emphasize ecumenical of the six issues. Remember that we just outlined Berean, B-E-R-E-A-N. The disciples really emphasize the disciples of Christ emphasize ecumenical. Then you have the Christian churches and churches of Christ. These are the ones like Porter Ranch, the Shepherd Church. Okay, They have really focused on non-denominationalism. So, in other words, every Christian can come to us and feel comfortable and welcome. You'll never hear them talk about Stone and Campbell. You'll never hear them talk about church history. They will just talk about Jesus. They'll talk about the Bible. They don't want to bring up creeds. They don't want to talk about Luther and Calvin and Presbyterians and Methodists. They just say, you know what, we're just Christians. And that was one of the emphases of our early movement. I would argue that it's a little bit naive. You don't want to, or, you know, you don't want people to be ignorant of church history. I think that's a mistake. Then you move into the Church of Christ. We're very rational. <laughs> as, as you know, we're sometimes too rational. Bible, uh, in Kenny's words, Bible bashing. 
you know, because Church of Christ, we know our Bibles. Just like you guys know your Bibles in the Acapella Church of Christ, former Acapella Church of Christ, we have a biblical focus and we are rational. International Church of Christ, you guys are very similar to the Church of Christ, except I would remove the rational inquiry and I would insert evangelism for the International Church of Christ. These are the two that you guys have really specialized in. You guys have PhDs in evangelism. You have PhDs in biblical focus. But you, you don't get an A in uh, some of the other, like, you know, like knowing your church history and so forth. So, and we all are that way. Every, all four of these movements have their strengths and their, and their challenges. Now, briefly, Pepperdine, I'm not going to read all this, but Pepperdine associates with the Church of Christ. Um, comes from this guy, George Pepperdine. Uh, we have a complex relationship with, with the Church of Christ here at Pepperdine. Um, and look at this point. Increasingly, we're attracting ICOC people, International Church of Christ people. So this has been a great boon to the religion and philosophy division. We have lots of International Church of Christ students coming our way, and we love them. We love them. This is the chapel at Pepperdine. Beautiful place. Encourage you to come in. This chapel is open most of the time. You can just pop in. It's just they keep it unlocked, as far as I know, all the time. Pepperdine has Christian convictions. I mean, you're going to find non-Christians here. You're going to find even non-Christian faculty. One of my neighbors uh, is actually a Sikh uh, who lives on campus in the faculty housing. So we we have non-Christian people at Pepperdine. But there's a, there, there's a lot of people that have strong Christian convictions at this, at this wonderful institution. We have convocation, basically convocations like chapel. We'll do services once a week. Um, all the students at Pepperdine, all the undergraduate students take three religion classes, uh, virtually all of them. Um, we do Bible lectures in May. Strongly encourage you guys to come join us for that, for the Bible lectures. Even teach. They'll, they'll welcome you to teach a class. Many Christian uh, professors and students. It's a great place. I want to close this uh, lecture with, uh, Kenny actually asked me to put some readings here. This is the best I can think of. I use these three books in my, in my uh, Stone Campbell Movement class. And if you're going to notice a, a common name, Doug Foster. Doug Foster is the kind of the, the kingpin of the movement. He was my supervisor for my master's degree. He's at Abilene Christian, just retired. Great guy. Some of you know of Doug Foster. But he's co-authored a bunch of stuff with Gary Holloway, Newell Williams, etc., Paul Blowers. But uh, the, the common thread in all these books is Doug Foster. He's a great friend of mine, great scholar, Abilene Christian University. Look him up on the web. Wonderful guy. Close friend of mine and probably our most prolific scholar. And by the way, he just released a biography of Alexander Campbell, who's really considered the founder of this movement. Homework? Kenny said you need to give, give these people some homework, like you did to me. All right, here's your homework. Buy one of these books. It'll be a good start. And secondly, come to Pepperdine and take my class. That's the obvious answer to the question. Homework? Homework? Yes. Come to Pepperdine and take my class. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to this. I look forward to 
answering your questions. Thank you for hearing me out. I went a little over time. I apologize for that. Yeah. Wow, that's that's a that's a crucial question for for me personally because I have uh, two 14-year-olds. I think they love the Lord, but they're getting to that age where they can start exercising their own self-determination. Um I I think the the best thing you can do is to have deep and open and gracious and forgiving relationships with your kids. I'll just share a little story with about with you. Um, recently, I was talking on Zoom with <clears throat> with a student, and this student was asking me about uh, when I met my wife at college, and because they they found out that I married young, I married at the age of 22, and they were asking me like, how did you guys afford living? Uh, you know. How did you afford getting married at the age of 22 with student debt and all that stuff? And and so I, I answered her the best I knew how. But then I asked her in reverse. I said, "Why do you ask me that?" I said, "Are you?" Uh, I said, "Are you thinking about getting married?" And she literally she turned around and her dad was sitting right behind her. You know, they were. <laughs> her dad was right there, and she said, "Professor." Let me go out to the porch and answer that question. Okay. All right. That's fine. So she went out on the porch and she said, I'm going to tell you this, but I don't want my dad to hear. She said, yes, I found a guy and we're thinking about getting married. So here's a guy. Here I am. I've, I've known this student for a couple weeks. And she's opening up to me about things, which I, I'm. You know, I love connecting with my students and talking about deep things. But she didn't have a type of relationship that she could tell her dad that she's thinking about getting married. And so I see this mistake made over and over with parents is their kids just don't want to open up to them. It's complicated. We could probably spend a whole year talking about how to build bridges with your kids. But I would say the best place to start is by having a deep relationship with your kids that they're not experiencing shame when they're around you. They're not afraid to open up to you. You know, that you establish the type of relationship that they can be a hundred percent honest. That's where I would begin. Well, the, so the Dead Sea Scrolls don't have New Testament literature in them. The Dead Sea Scrolls are exclusively, uh, old, you know, in terms of scriptures, they're exclusively Old Testament scriptures. And so the great discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was this. <clears throat> Our oldest, this is going to blow your mind, newbie. The, the oldest manuscripts that we had of the Old Testament prior to the 1940s was like maybe from the 900s. Wow. We did not have really old manuscripts. And this made Christianity very vulnerable to the critiques of Islam. Mm -hmm. Islam always argued that as your texts got translated, um, they, people made mistakes. And so the texts that you guys have today are not the same as the texts way back. Mm -hmm. 
Muslims critiqued Christianity, and that was their most powerful argument, is they said, there's no way that your texts today are the same thing because you guys don't even have any old manuscripts. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls date to like 100 B.C. Mm -hmm. So to put that in perspective, newbie, normally when we discover a new manuscript, it may push back the dating by a year, maybe three or four years, five years, whenever we find a manuscript. The Dead Sea Scrolls push back our dates of the Old Testament, not the new, mm -hmm. but push back the dates of our Old Testament manuscripts by like a thousand years. And you know what? It's what? They're exactly the same. Okay. The texts that the Jews were copying in those in those caves in Israel are the same texts that we're using today. Church history is from the church from Pentec you know from the New Testament era until today. That's church history. And then within the greater field of church history, so the the study of, of God's people, the, the, the church, the New Testament people, church history when we say Church history, in a generic way. We're talking about New Testament to today, the church. But we have all sorts of subset studies within church history. We have medieval church history. We have what's often called the church fathers. Okay, We have enlightenment, the enlightenment or the modern church. We have the postmodern church. We have the Stone-Campbell movement. We have the history of the Catholic church. So there's different subunits within this this great big 2,000-year mammoth called church history. Right. Yeah. So I teach I teach a huge class called History of Christianity. Basically, okay. I teach a class, like, that's one of the classes I teach. I love it, but it's just a bird's-eye view, 30,000-feet view of, uh, of 2,000 years of Christianity. But what you heard tonight was a more specific little slice from about 1,800 to today, looking at this little slice known as the Stone-Campbell movement, which, as you saw in the statistics, keep in mind, Christianity is by far the largest religion in the world. Yeah. Christianity, there's about, about one out of three people on the planet claim to be Christians. Okay? And so what, how many people is that? Well, that's like two and a half billion people. Right. So, and, and when we talk about the global Stone-Campbell movement, we're only talking about like maybe 15 million people. So our tribe is very small, you know. I mean, it's 15 million people. But in comparison with 2.5, 2.6 billion people, our tribe is pretty small. I do teach a class on global Christianity. Here's this. It's called The Changing World of Christianity. Okay. okay. This is, and the, the subtitle is The Global History of a Borderless Religion. So okay. my publications, uh, what's your name? I'm sorry. Patricia. Patricia. My publications are more, more likely like this. So if you look up my books, I publish mainly on the global church. I don't publish a whole lot on the Stone-Campbell tradition. I published probably five or six articles. Okay. I've never published a book. I've published about 12 books, but I've never published a book specifically on the Stone-Campbell movement. That was just my topic for this class tonight. Yesterday in class, uh, I brought into the Zoom class, I brought in a Sikh gentleman that I've known for years. 
Uh, Tuesday, I brought in a, a Jane woman. On Monday, I brought into my class a Buddhist nun. So I'm very comfortable and very familiar with talking and developing relationships with people from other religions. Okay, so um, I think it's important that we keep an open mind. I think that Jesus tells us verbatim that it's not our job to, to judge people, to say where they're going, you know, heaven or hell. He tells us that. Don't do that. Don't, you know, don't judge. It's Matthew 5. Um, or, or you'll bring judgment on yourself. And what I think Jesus is saying, because Paul tells us, Paul tells us it's fine to judge those within the church, doesn't he? You know what I'm talking about, Chuka? Yeah. He says, are, are we not to judge those in the church? Of course we're supposed to judge each other in the church. Of course we are. So what's Jesus talking about? If we're allowed to judge people in the church, what's he talking about? I think what Jesus is talking about is don't assign people an afterlife because if you do that, you're being arrogant. You're basically stepping on God's territory. God assigns us to heaven or hell. And so if we say, oh, just listen to, listen to me. I'll tell, oh, you, you're going to hell. You're going to, I think that Jesus is saying, don't, don't do that. Now, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father through me. The question is, can people get to the Father through Jesus without knowing Jesus? That's the question of the ages. So, in other words, people are separated from Jesus in three ways. People are separated from Jesus chronologically. So, if you're born and you die 500 years before Christ, how can you know Jesus if, you're, if you lived 500 years before Jesus? You can be separated from Christ chronologically. You can be separated from Christ geographically. So what if you're from Native America, from the, the Americas before Columbus? They, they had no chance to know Jesus because no, no, no one had brought the gospel over to, to the Americas. And then you can also be separated from Christ intellectually. So you can be separated from Christ chronologically, geographically, and intellectually. Intellectually is the one I'm talking about right now because what about a baby who dies or a baby that gets uh, aborted? Can they, can, you know, can they end up in heaven? A baby that, that dies, you know, three days after it's born. Is that baby going to go to hell or heaven? Well, the baby obviously never knew Jesus uh, intellectually. So my point here is that People can be separated from Christ in three major ways, chronologically, geographically, intellectually. The question is, um, is Jesus, who, who exactly is, is God going to save? I think that nobody's saved outside of the blood of Jesus, okay, because that blood flows both ways, both, both directions from the cross. The question is, you know, each individual case, is this person saved? Is that person saved? And all we can do is say, Jesus has commanded us to leave that up to God. That's how I would answer that. Yeah, well, it sounds to me like you are somebody who God has has decided to turn his face towards you and reach out to you directly. And it's electrifying. Um, when God turns his face towards you and decides to 
make you his own, just like he did with Paul, you know, Saul. It just really lights you up, and you're never going to be the same again. And so it sounds to me like God has called you into, he's called you in a unique way. And my advice would be, enjoy this, enjoy this ride. God has called, he's pulled you up close to him. You're going to be electric with his, with his love and with his grace. And I would say, use it to propel your own ministry, your own evangelism. When I first turned to Jesus, it, I, it was like what you're describing. It was just like, how did I not see this before? This is incredible. I'm in touch with the universe. I'm in touch with outer space. I'm in touch with my innermost depths. You know, you, you realize that I'm, I'm God's child and I'm pretty special. You know, it, it's a, it's a great feeling. The temptation's always there, Tim, to, as you become more ecumenical and open, you, the fires often cool off. They don't have to. I mean, there's no law of physics that says, as you become more open and more learned and more education, that you have to lose your fires of evangelism. But that is kind of the natural course of how things have played out historically. So I would say the great challenge for a church is to become more gracious, open-minded, but yet keep that evangelistic zeal. But very rarely do you find those two things together. I'm trying to create, trying to educate Christians to have both of those things. I'm a passionate evangelist. I love speaking about Jesus with people. I love sharing my faith. But at the same time, as you probably gathered, I'm, I'm a very open-minded person, very open-minded person. Now, you do need to be anchored in your faith. Keep in mind, I've been a, a Christian for a long time, so I don't think that a brand-new Christian is not necessarily the person you need to put on the front lines of evangelism because they're not going to have many answers when they first turn to Jesus and first start learning about the Bible and about church history and stuff. They're just not immersed in it enough. So that takes some maturity. But I will tell you this, Tim, lastly, and this is a conversation I'm sure we'll have in my office one of these days, but um, I'll tell you this, that what I what makes me sad is that people, you know, like a Church of Christ person, they start getting open with, uh, let's say, other Stone Campbell people, then other Protestants, and then Catholics, and then Buddhists, and then Baha'i, and pretty soon they're universalists. Basically, they say, all people are good. God created everybody. I don't think God would throw anybody in hell, so we're all going to heaven. That's a step that I, I'm, not, I'm not willing to go down that path. I do believe that we're not to judge, but I do believe there is a place called hell. And I believe as Christians, we need to be careful to stay on the straight and narrow. And it's called a straight and narrow. The, the gate is called narrow for a reason. First Peter says it's difficult. Uh, you know, First Peter chapter 4, where he says it's hard for the righteous to be saved. It's difficult to be saved. You have to live a uh, – it takes great effort to walk the straight and narrow. So I am, I am not a pluralist. I am not uh, a universalist. But I am an ecumenical person and an ecumenical Christian. Connected to the teachings of the apostles, is that what you're asking? There is truth to that. Now, the, the short answer, I'm going to put up another book here. This is a book I published a few years back called Roots, and the subtitle is Uncovering Why We Do What We Do in Church. I love this little book. It's a, it's a nice little study if you're wanting to know the history 
of several things we do. You mentioned baptism. There's a whole chapter on baptism, and yes, I delve in deeply into the Didache. The Didache is, uh, without doubt, it's an authentic uh, early Christian teaching that dates to, like, the year 100 or something. I mean, it, it dates to the end of the first century. Uh, we're, we're absolutely convinced that it's authentic teaching from uh, from the probably the second generation of Christianity, which makes it, I mean, arguably the most crucial uh, post-New Testament text, I would say, the Didache. Some of you have probably never heard about this. It's a Didache is the Greek word that basically means the teaching. It's talking about the teaching of the apostles, which got passed down to the second generation. And so, um, you know, there's all kinds of teachings. Like when it talks about baptism, it says that, um, you know, when, when you baptize, you you should uh, look for um, living water. Right? Living water. Yeah, water that's actually flowing, <laughs> that's clean. You know, it gives little prescriptions like that that you would you would you would never think about. You'd often wonder why why are they talking about that? And it just shows you some of the things they were thinking about in that era. So yeah, I have a whole I, I go into the Didache virtually in every chapter of that book. Um I think there's eight chapters, something like that. I'm looking at eight different things that we do today um and how they got to from New Testament times to today. So for example in the baptism chapter I go into why we? Why do we have infant baptism? Why does that? Why is that a thing? It, it's excellent stuff, and yet another reason why we need to know our church history. You know, that, that's the Didache is an early document that all church historians, like myself, take very seriously. There's a lot of stuff that's fluff. Um, you know, that nobody really knows its authenticity and stuff. But the Didache is uh, un, undoubtedly crucial for the. You know the late first century, early second century church. It's a crucial text. Well, again, the Apocrypha and uh, Enoch, these are Old Testament uh, or intertestamental books. So these are before Jesus. These are before the age of the New Testament writings. So, um, but Book of Enoch, I mean, that's an interesting case because you get a few of these epigraphal or apocryphal books that are actually quoted in the New, by New Testament authors. Are you aware of that? Some of these books are quote. Some of these apocryphal books are actually quoted in the New Testament, particularly by Second Peter. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to take the apocrypha, um, and everyone everyone's list of the apocryphal books kind of varies. I mean, you have the Maccabees, you have Enoch, you have uh, Joseph and Arsenid, you you have you know. There's a whole slew of them. Um, you know, any any. You know, go on, go on to the web, and you'll you'll find kind of the standard texts that appear on all the lists. But yeah, I think they're valuable. Now, I I am of the opinion that the New Testament is a new, more authentic, updated covenant, and so that's why I did not. And and God bless my Old Testament colleagues, <laughs> but uh, if I was going to you know get a PhD in the New Testament, the Old Testament, it's maybe it's just me, but I hands down, I would prefer the New Testament. <laughs> you know, I you know, it's like you're getting a PhD in the law that was transcended in the New Covenant. So <laughs> I would rather get a PhD in the New Covenant. But uh I mean God bless all those people, all my close friends, uh, you know, Chris Hurd, Rick Mars, uh Randy Chestnut, 
you know, these guys study the Old Testament and they're and they're very good at it. But uh, but as far as the books that you mentioned, I would say, yeah, take them very seriously. You I don't know if you know this, but like the Ethiopian church, which I, I've spent some good time in Africa um, studying the, you know, I, I, I study African Christianity a great deal. In fact, somebody texted me and they said, why don't you study African Christianity? Kenny, I think it was your dad, actually. <laughs> they, they sent a message that you study India so much. Why don't you study Africa? Well, I do study Africa. I go to Africa a lot, too. But when you get a Ph.D., you have to specialize in one area. And so the area that I specialized in was India. But trust me, I've spent a lot of time in Africa. I know a lot about the, the history of the African church. And so don't get me started on that because that, you'll have to give me a few more lectures. But the African church is where it's at right now. But um, all that aside, the, the, the Coptic church, the uh, Ethiopic church, Tebahedo church, uh, the Catholic church, the Eastern Orthodox church, they all consider the Apocrypha as worthy reading. And it's included. Even the Anglicans, even the Anglicans, that's a Protestant group. It's included in their Bible. So if you buy an Anglican, you know, Oxford annotated Bible, it's going to be Old Testament, New Testament, and the Apocrypha. So let's put it this way. Millions upon millions of Christians over the years have considered the Apocrypha as worthy reading. Now, all of them will say it's a secondary status to the canonical scriptures. They will all say that. In fact, this book of mine, I hate to do this, but if you want to, I have a chapter on the history of the Bible, and I talk about this precise issue. Well, the, the, the most uh, important, so just a little background. The word codex basically means uh, a, a book. It's the, because the way Jews organized their texts was in scrolls. Okay. They had a scroll that had two handles. And you could, you know, you, you could explore the text that way. See, if you look what I'm doing with my hand, like you, you would go this way and then, and then bring it together and then open up here and then go that way. And, you know, you okay. have long parchments or papyri uh, organized in scrolls. Scrolls were very clunky and difficult to handle. So codex was a new type of uh, technology, which basically allowed people, like a book. So uh, here I am, uh, I'm going to, Push my book again. So, you know, so we don't have to do the rolling of the text. So we have a, a codex. That's what the word codex means. Okay. There's two vitally important. What The plural of codex is codices. And the two most important codices are Sinaiticus and Codex uh, Vaticanus. So let me just put those in the, in the chat. I've been chatting to individuals, so I have to be sure to click uh, everyone. Vaticanus and uh, <laughs> and Sinaiticus. So these these are the oh good. I'm glad somebody ordered roots. We'll have to tell me what you think. <laughs> yeah. So those are the two most important uh, codices. Now those codices are absolutely vital for us as church historians and Bible scholars, because it's, it's the oldest complete copies of the new Testament that we have. So it's really crucial, what we call manuscripts, really crucial manuscripts. So I realize that some of you are probably thinking, well, this is awfully technical. What does that have to do with my life and all that? But here's the, the short answer to that. 
is if we don't have a firm, conclusive understanding of what the New Testament text should be, then we got problems. And we're open to critique, like by Islam. Muslims will say, you guys aren't even reading the same Bible that they were in the New Testament. You guys have, you know, you have different texts and everything. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls put that argument to rest. But we got to constantly be um, mining the, you know, our um, archaeologists, Christian archaeologists, got to keep mining the the ground in, especially in 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 Egypt and in Israel, to find more and more of these uh, these manuscripts. The, the um, I, I think it. Don't ever let people downplay the the idea of the manuscripts and the codices and and uh, these ancient texts. I mean, it's it is kind of recondite work to spend your life with a magnifying glass and computer programs analyzing whether these things are authentic or not. My colleagues do this, but without those guys with their magnifying glasses and their microscopes looking at these texts. We wouldn't know if we what we have today is the same thing that they had 2,000 years ago. We wouldn't know that. So I think I give praise to God that some people are called to that. Now that's I, I can I can dapple in that kind of stuff, but my specialty is more the full history of the church. But I appreciate those guys that look at the codices and look at the manuscripts. Awesome, awesome. It's All a very right. it's a very scientific field. You have to understand how Paul wrote, how Paul did his his iotas and, and so forth, how he how he wrote. You have to understand very technical stuff like that. How which which school of monks wrote like this or like that? I mean, it's it's really technical. You just listened to the West Side podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.